Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. Today, we look at Egypt. The army's efforts to clear supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood from camps around Cairo has led to hundreds of deaths and a deepening political crisis. So what is the future for Egypt? And how is the rest of the world likely to react? Joining me on the line from Cairo is our correspondent there, Heba Salah. And also on the line from the Middle East is David Gardner, our senior international affairs commentator. Heba first. It's the day after this terrible bloodshed in Cairo. You've been uh, around the city to this uh, this morning. Uh, what's what's the situation now? Has the shooting stopped? And do we have a, a sense of uh, how big the toll is? We still don't have a sense of how big the toll is. The shooting has stopped, but the unrest has not. This morning, I went to a mosque not far from the site of the largest of the two protest camps that were dismantled yesterday by the security services. There were something like 250 bodies laid on the floor in the mosque. There were grieving relatives, people coming to identify their relations. Many of the bodies were still unidentified and an atmosphere of anger and deep sorrow. We don't really know if those 250 are in the official death toll. Human rights workers suspect not. The death toll, the official death toll is 525 around the country because there was a lot of violence outside Cairo and outside the campsites yesterday. So we're, we're looking potentially at an additional 250 bodies on top of the official death toll, which we don't even know whether it's accurate or not. Do you think that the army intended to go in this heavily to kill as many as people as this? Was was that always the goal or was this did this just get out of hand? And do you think they have a sense of what they want to do now? They did say that there was going to be a phased operation, but this was not a phased operation. There were, of course, warnings over the previous days that they planned to clear the camps, but this was not phased operation. They said that they would use tear gas only, and they said that they had used tear gas only, but of course that's not true. They used birdshot, they used live ammunition too. So... Clearly, they came prepared. They knew what they were doing. And do you think they still know what they're doing? I mean, do you think that they were really in for allow a prolonged period of repression with really only lip service paid to any suggestion of a restoration of democracy or dialogue with the Muslim Brotherhood? It is really hard to read their minds, but what seems clear is that they imagine that they could restore a political process of, of any description without the Islamists. But this is likely to prove difficult because there is a large Islamist constituency in the country. Yes, it has become less popular since Morsi became president, but it is still large. 
and yesterday's actions are likely to spark more anger, probably radicalization of a portion of the Islamist movement. So if some people imagine that this is where it ends, I think that's unlikely. David, uh, looking at the situation from the international perspective, it looks like a complete mess from uh, the perspective of policymakers, whether they're in Washington or in Brussels. How do you think the West is likely to react to this? Well, so far, pretty feebly. I mean, they've been sitting around watching in the past six weeks since the coup itself what is beginning to look like a full-scale restoration of the security state, which is not, of course, the same thing as re-establishing security, as, you know, any of the 45 churches that were attacked, mostly in Upper Egypt in the Nile Valley yesterday, can attest. Not the same thing at all, but step by step, um, at the same time that the Americans, for reasons we know, refused to call a coup a coup. First of all, it was a coup. Secondly, the interior minister, in in effect, resurrects the most fearsome uh, secret police organization of the old order, the state security agency, Amin al-Dawla, albeit its elements rather than its name. You have the appointment earlier this week, prior to the crackdown, of 19 generals, including two police generals, to govern Egypt's most neuralgic provinces. And then finally, you have the reinstatement of martial law, in effect, the state of emergency under which the Mubarak regime ruled for 30 years. This looks like a full-scale restoration and a comprehensive crushing of the Brotherhood which the army appears to think, General Sisi appears to think, they can get away with since they do not believe and have been given no reason to believe at any point that the $1.3 billion annual U.S. stipend for the Egyptian military, which has been running since Egypt made peace with Israel in 1979, they've never, ever been given any reason to believe that that could be at risk and haven't now. They have, furthermore, the comprehensive endorsement of Saudi Arabia and most of its absolute monarchist friends in the Gulf for this restoration of the security state and an instant pledge of $12 billion after the coup. And they would, I imagine, assume there's plenty more where that comes from. And furthermore, as John Kerry perhaps ill-advisedly pointed out in an interview at the beginning of the month in Pakistan, he said millions and millions of people called for them to intervene to restore democracy, he said. And I think General Sisi censors this popular support, which is fickle, we know, and it's substantiated in the polls and so on. And meanwhile, Mohammed al-Baradai apart, a lot of liberal, secular, leftish people seem to be behind this. So in those circumstances, what can the U.S., which purportedly has leverage, much less the EU, which thought it had a deal on the transition, materially do? Okay, and where does this then leave any attempt to have a sort of coherent approach to the whole, what we used to call the Arab Spring? I suspect we're going to stop calling it that, but the the whole tumult in the Middle East, because you have the West at least rhetorically 
calling for the end of the Assad regime in Syria, backing the rebels there. And yet, arguably, what the Egyptian generals have just done is on a small scale what President Assad's been doing, using violence to crush an Islamist-tinged opposition. No, indeed. I mean, not for nothing, immediately after the coup, did you see Bashar al-Assad all but doing a sort of war dance on the Muslim Brotherhood's grave. Delighted he was. He thought, you see, I've been right from the beginning. I think, first of all, it was ill-advised to consider it an Arab Spring, rather a second Arab awakening, which, at a minimum, you know, would take... 10 years, more probably at least a generation to play itself out. I mean, 10 years perhaps for relatively unproblematic countries with, you know, fewer internal problems. It was always unrealistic to think somehow that these countries would slip from essentially Western-backed dictatorships into Jeffersonian democracy in some seamless way. Of course, that was never going to happen. I, by no means, would write it off. I think the interesting, if tragic thing that has happened, is that whereas it was perfectly predictable that with the fall of these regimes, which had prohibited all organized political activity, but couldn't ban the activities of the mosque, It was perfectly predictable, therefore, that it would be Islamist organizations at or near the center of the state. What was not, at least to me, predictable, and is is, is really, truly remarkable, is the very short time in which these organizations, typified by the Brotherhood in Egypt, I mean, the mothership, as it were, have crashed and burned. In one year, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt spectacularly self-destructed. That, I think, is extraordinarily remarkable. I think to all the actors concerned, I don't think anybody anticipated that. Heba, let me come back to you to uh, get your views finally on this uh, much-used, perhaps much-abused phrase, the Arab Spring in Cairo. I mean, Cairo was the city that was more than any other, synonymous with the Arab Spring, has all the hope that uh, originated with the uh, the downfall of Mubarak over two years ago now. Has that now evaporated, or is there still some some hope that there can be positive change for the future? Well, it doesn't feel much like spring here. Yeah, this is a very bad moment. It's difficult to say if the hope has evaporated. I think the hope has not evaporated We are at a moment where it is very difficult to impose the type of authoritarian government that it was possible, for instance, to impose in Algeria after they cancelled an election because Islamists were winning and then there was an era of repression. I think there just are now limits to what, what kind of repression could take place. But even if there will still be people going out and asking for freedom, I think there will, there's also going to be a backlash. So uh, this, this, this is a struggle that will continue. And apart from, aside from this, the mechanisms are absent. The parties are weak. So many people now look compromised by what happened. It will take some time to recover from this. In the meantime, the economy is bad and is not going to improve if there is instability. This will limit the government's ability to repress, but it will also 
keep people on the defensive. So I think maybe hope is not lost, but a very, very difficult patch ahead of us. Heba Saleh in Cairo, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And thanks also to David Gardner on the line from Beirut. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.